Welcome back to the PFC podcast. The views and opinions you are about to hear are the speakers and do not necessarily reflect those of anyone else. Now on to the podcast. Welcome back to the PFC podcast. This is Dennis and today we have two special guests who have recently or fairly recently came back from the Antarctic. Uh, Tim and Ian, how are you guys doing? Good, Outstanding. Hey, uh, since uh, Ian's been on here before, uh, Tim, would you mind doing a, a quick introduction? Oh, sure. Um, so my name is uh, Tim Talbot. I'm a board-certified emergency medicine and an uh, EMS-trained uh, physician. Uh, spent about 28 years in the military uh, doing various uh, operational jobs. And then uh, moved on to uh, the civilian world. And I have actually the privilege of... Uh, being a ship doctor uh, for trips to the Arctic and the Antarctic and spending about four months of the year in various polar regions. Okay. So when you, when you're, uh, I guess, whatever this organization that you're dealing with, is this like a, a governmental organization or is this a, just a civilian um, service that, that covers those type of expeditions? Uh, so these are uh, predominantly all civilian. Uh, they do have some uh, research uh, folks that come along on some of the trips to help with some of the uh, Antarctic research um, because we get into areas where they can't, don't normally get into. Uh, but for predominantly, it's more paying customers. Um, and this is actually, you know, the ship's doctor, essentially the only medical person that is actually on board the ship. Okay. Um, so I guess because you're dealing with a, probably a pretty largely an international crowd, um, you know, how do you, I guess, how do you prepare for, for an expedition like this, uh, you know, dealing with insurance and different scopes of practice and um, different norms from different or different uh, nationalities? Well, it actually gets quite uh, it's simple from the insurance perspective. Uh, we don't actually charge, um, which makes it good. So we're there in kind of a good Samaritan type uh, role. Uh, we don't charge for the, for the health care. We're there to provide the uh, kind of 911 emergency services if something should happen. Uh, we, of course, like any other you know, kind of deployment or expedition, we expect people to bring their own personal medications um, starting off um, enough for, you know, whatever they're going for a period of time, plus, you know, at, at least an additional several weeks afterwards just in case. Um, now, prepping the equipment and prepping for the journey itself. Uh, we've been doing this for a number of years. Uh, we have a pretty well-stocked uh, kind of pharmacy, um, general medical equipment, you know, to include EKG, uh, oxygen uh, generator, um, and your typical resuscitation gear, um, but as well as a lot of the medical aspect stuff. We actually don't have any um, laboratory testing other than uh, a dextrose. So, you know, you can get a finger stick blood glucose, and that's about the extent of the laboratory testing you do. Uh, but I also carry as well a handheld ultrasound, which provides the, the only imaging available uh, for, for, that, for that period. Um, and then setting up, uh, we, the good thing is, as part of the expedition staff, is most of my expedition team members, anywhere from 12 to 15 of them, will have some type of uh, wellness medical training. There'll be a woofer, a wellness first responder, um, up to including whatever uh, their nation's equivalent of a paramedic. Um, that's, those are rare. Um, I think my last one, I had a Japanese paramedic who was on board with me. Um, but that's about, about the extent of the medical training. It's mostly world's first responders and what I bring to the table. 
So, you know, for things like, uh, at least in military, things like uh, blood, um, blood transfusions, you know, are, are getting to be fairly common. Um, you know, does that really change when you're dealing with uh, your clientele? Like, do you bring that capability with you? Uh, we have not in the past, and that's actually something we're looking at currently, um, which to add just an additional kind of, uh, you know, thing. Because when we look at evacuation and movements out of those areas, uh, you're talking days for evacuation. So your your definition of you know prolonged field care uh, may maybe a little bit more extensive than in that we have some more, more equipment that we're not necessarily carrying. Um, but we do provide um, you know kind of trauma resuscitation and recovery skills for our land-based stuff that we do. So we'll do some hiking, several hours of hiking up on glaciers, up in the, up in the mountains of Antarctica. Um, they'll sometimes give, you know, other additional sports. We'll do some, uh, either cross-country skiing, downhill skiing, snowshoeing, and sometimes even staying overnight on the continent. Um, so we have to be prepared with a short kit that actually has all the trauma-based and evacuation-based stuff as well. Um, so, you know, you had mentioned you're, you're an ER physician, um, and as, uh, diverse as an ER physician can be, you know, there's so many other like, specialties that probably are not covered at all, um, with that type of education, like dentistry, um, as an example, what kind of training did you need to get beyond that so that you could cover kind of any type of situation in, like you said, and manage it for three to four days? Um, you know, funny enough, we see quite, quite a bit of dental um, issues in, in the emergency department. So uh, I'm actually up, I've done up to including removing teeth in the past. Um, so uh, not necessarily a lot of additional education. Um, we provide a pretty much broad spectrum across all specialties. Um, trying to think if there's anything specific, uh, not necessarily, um, other than actually hands-on with the equipment. So, you know, being a physician in the ER is entirely different than being the sole provider in a remote location. Um, not, I may not necessarily in the ER be touching the equipment and, and doing the EKG and doing the lines and doing some of the other things. Um, but once I get into that remote area, I'm the one doing all of that. Um, so being familiar with the equipment, actually hands-on and actually knowing the ins and outs of every equipment and every piece that you bring with you. Yeah, Dennis, I think the I think the thing that uh, we picked up that really helps us with all this stuff and the way we've learned it is actually through the the wilderness training uh, more than anything else because that's the the one way that we're actually doing this stuff outside of the hospital setting. And, and yeah, I'm with Tim, and I, I probably see uh, three or four dental complaints a day at a minimum every shift that I work. Uh, but it is it is getting used to using all that equipment outside the ha- uh, outside the hospital, which which both of us and a lot of listeners obviously have done uh, in our military time. But then with wilderness medicine, you know, we're kind of taking it even a, a step further and getting used to that role outside of the, the fixed facility. And instead, in Tim's case, moving it into a, a uh, 200-person moving fixed facility on the worst seas of the earth. Right. <laughs> right. Um, so you mentioned that, you know, sometimes you have, a, you know, a, a paramedic or, or somebody uh, – such as that, when you when you do not, uh, do you have the opportunity to cross train an, an individual to help you? So we actually have a resuscitation team that we we do internally on, on board the ship. Everybody has a very defined role, um, and we exercise that at the beginning of, of each. So the trip's usually anywhere from like two to three weeks at a time, uh, with various groups of folks going. 
Um, so we'll actually do that and actually exercise that capability. So moving someone in and around a ship, vertical, you know, extractions up and down stairwells, um, it, it can be quite uh, challenging at times. And, and to have folks on board that ship that don't know how to actually use the equipment or move the equipment or how to, you know, basically do basic things uh, has to be exercised. And we, we do that pretty much on a regular basis. Okay. Um, so I think I, I got a real good idea as, as far as the prep prep work going into this. Um, you know, now you're, you know, accepting uh, the, uh, the passengers and the crew, you know, uh, I believe when you guys went, COVID was just kicking off. Um, so there was definitely not a lot known at the time. Uh, how were you screening guys uh, before you went off on this uh, merry adventure? Well, I am very fortunate in, the, in that the, the group I work with, uh, the medical director for the, uh, for the company itself is an emergency medicine physician. And the only doctors we hire are emergency medicine physicians. Um, so very much in touch with this whole pandemic plan type aspect of planning. Um, so we, we set it up so that we actually had screening questions that were done for all the passengers before they can even set foot on the key over by the boat. Um, we met them at the buses where they were being dropped off. Um, we did a screening, temperature screening and screening of passports and travel history um, prior to actually allowing them to be, you know, get back onto the boat. Um, we were in, Doc essentially with about six different shifts at that time, as we watched other folks doing their screening, uh, which were somewhat rudimentary, never actually taking a temperature of this, occasionally taking a random temperature and not screening 100%. We were probably one of the only ships that didn't have a single COVID case, whereas about eight or nine other ships at the same time that boarded the same week had multiple. Oh, that's excellent. I would imagine, is this something you had to do you know, when they came on board and maybe, you know, oh, two, three days oh, they later? Never, they never even got on the ship. Oh, okay. um, we, we actually screened them uh, with a, a questionnaire screening several days before. Anybody that flagged on that questionnaire screening had to get, a, a you know, up close and personal with the physician before they get on the boat. And we did all the screening, all the temperature checks away from the, uh, the boat. Mm -hmm. So uh, they were actually not, not even allowed to get on, on the boat or near the boat until they've all been screened 100%. Very good. Um, so once you have your, you know, your healthy population, uh, and off you go, uh, like you mentioned, you know, the, that, um, God, I forget the name of the ocean between, uh, um, South America and the, in the actual Antarctic, you know, it's yeah. very, uh, dangerous waters. Um, yeah. Drake's passage. Yes. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. So how how did the uh, the crew and their, the passengers more likely uh, how were they handling that trip? <laughs> so yeah, <laughs> trying to trying to it gracefully uh, for the most part it's, it most people try to endure that first crossing. Um, so you're talking a minimum of about um, if the weather's good, we can get across in probably two days. If it's bad, it's three days. Um, but you're also talking the worst weather of the world where you have the Atlantic and the Pacific coming together with both their storm systems and they typically meet in the center. Um, and there is not unusual to have waves that go over the ship. Um, so you can see where we have people on, on multiple floors on a ship um, with a ship that's rolling sideways up to a 45 degree uh, angle and back and forth, up and forward. Of course, you know, the seasickness gets most of them. Um, and it's almost universal for the first two days 
um, that you're guaranteed you're going to have some pairing of seasickness, no matter how seasoned a mariner you are. So that very first uh, crossing part, uh, most folks will have some pretty pretty significant seasickness. Okay. So were you just dealing with, uh, with Zofran or? So uh, funny enough, Zofran doesn't work very well for seasickness. Um, so most of it is, is, is uh, based on central brain kind of vertigo type symptom because you get a very big disconnect between what your eyes are telling you and the three-dimensional movements your body is going through at all times. Mm-hmm. So I guess other than, you know, the dehydration that they probably have, um, is there anything that you can really do that helps better with seasickness? Well, first of all, pre-medication is probably best. If you can pre-medicate before getting sick, you're going to do better. Um, if you can't pre-medicate, um, typically there are a couple of drugs that work better than others. Uh, Fenergan, probably the go-to because it helps you adapt actually quicker to the seasickness than anything else. So, other than the seasickness, you know, and you mentioned, you know, once you once you actually get to the Arctic. You know, the, the the folks are staying on ship and they're taking shorter trips with the Zodiacs uh, to the shore. And you even mentioned, you know, the threats of like cold water immersion. Um, is this a, is this somewhat uh, common given the given the the, the uh, you know the weather well, the sea state? There? <laughs> well, it can be. Um, so when the weather's beautiful, it's beautiful, and the waters are flat, and they're like, like just like a window in ice. Um, when it's not so good weather, we still go out. Um, we can have up to about four to six foot sea state. We're still going to bring them on to shore. Um, so you always have that chance of someone taking a wrong step off the side of the Zodiac and landing in the water. Everybody, of course, has waterproof layers on. Everybody has flotation on. Um, but still, once you get into that water, most people are a little bit shocked. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Dennis. Interestingly, uh, about half of the people on the boat, uh, myself included, will actually do the polar plunge okay. while we're there. So you'll actually you'll actually jump into the the Antarctic Ocean, and I I never really quite fully appreciated uh, Gordon Giesbrecht's one ten one principle right. and the, the amazing degree of hyperventilation you have for that first minute. Okay, uh, when you jump in until until you actually do it. Okay. Uh, it um, was, uh, would you mind going over that one ten one rule? Yeah. So it's uh, yeah. So it's a uh, it's principle. It's, it's uh, Gordon Giesbrecht out of uh, Canada. What's the guy they call Doctor Popsicle that talks about uh, cold water immersion, hypothermia, and so forth. And it's when you when you jump into or fall into cold water, you're immersed in cold water. You have uh, one minute of hyperventilation that you need to get under control. Uh, keep yourself from drowning. So if you can get that under control, you won't drown. You then have about 10 minutes of functional muscular activity before you're so cold you can't do anything with your muscles. And then you have about an hour until you're hypothermic uh, to a severe level where it's life-threatening. Okay, and this is with a protective equipment on? Uh, this is with some sort of uh, some sort of standard clothing for um, uh, some sort of standard clothing or less. So it's not with survival suit or any of that kind of stuff. It's basically like you're in your standard uh, day-to-day clothing uh, when you jump in. Okay. So how hard was it to uh, get over that hyper uh, uh, tachypnea? There? It, it, 
it was uh, <laughs> i mean i expected it and i'd seen it a bunch of times uh, uh and i was able to but it's uh there, there was a there were a few words that came out of my mouth that i can't repeat on this <laughs> yeah so it's funny because every is a very stage of how people react to it and you get to see all of that um so you get the ones that have an immediate panic once they hit the water um to be the same, we do it safely. We actually have them in a harness and a rope so we can pull them in if they panic. Mm-hmm. Um, but you get some folks that will get out there and swim around for, you know, about five minutes. You get some folks, their foot touches the water and they're already clawing their way back onto the boat even before they've immersed themselves. Right. So um, so it's varying stages of how people react to it. Okay. Um, so, you, you know... Uh... So we've gotten, you know, kind of the, the common ones, I imagine, like the seasickness getting out there, um, cold water immersion, cold weather injuries. Um, what other, what other uh, situations are you seeing, you know, fairly frequently? Um, so like anything else, um, the typical stuff you see with folks, uh, congestive heart failure, coronary artery disease, um, strokes, um, and your typical respiratory and gastrointestinal infections. So infectious diseases on a boat is a, is a killer because it can sweep through the boat within 24 to 36 hours. Mm-hmm. So you all hear the horror stories about the rotavirus and, you know, sidelining a ship of 600 passengers. Um, so we have protocols in place to kind of deal with all that stuff, to kind of stop it in its tracks um, with isolation protocols and that sort of thing. But, you know, it's, it's like any other place. It's the same uh, kind of stuff that you see. So I've had anywhere from coronary disease, I've had heart attacks, I've had gallbladder surgical issues, I've had respiratory issues with, you know, folks in 80-year-olds with pneumonias and saturations in the mid-80s, um, bilateral femur fractures, and some of the traumatic stuff due to the waves. So. so do you generally evac them on the boat, or do you call in uh, like a C-130 or something like that? So... That's the problem with Antarctica. There is only one real airstrip, and that's the Argentinian airstrip on King George's Island on the northern tip of the peninsula. Other than that, um, there is no air evacuation available. So everything is by your own ship that you have to hold the patient for up to 72 hours to 96 hours at times. Um, if you can get to King George's Island and the weather cooperates, you may be able to get a flight in. If not, you've got another three-day passage back across the Drake Passage to South America using your own boat and your own resources. Right. So, you know, you've, you've just ruined everybody else's party um, to evac this guy? Correct. So I've actually had a, I had a heart attack a day and a half across the Drake Passage. So we're right, right in the middle of the worst seas, and we had to turn the ship around and go back another day and a half back to port. Right. Um, so that takes, you know, people are down there for a 10-day trip, and then now three days are gone. Right. So and now you have to cross back over the Drake Passage again. So, yeah, unfortunately, that's the case. If it's something that can we can sustain till we get to King George's Island, and we can park them on another ship that's heading back, or we can, you know, basically get them flown out, that's fine. If it's something that's a, a true life-threatening emergency, um, the captain makes that decision. The captain is the captain of the boat. He has the ultimate decision authority, and if he thinks that someone's, you know, is at risk of dying, he's going to make the decision to sustain human life. So. Okay. Um, and obviously, you have uh, like telemedicine or anything, any other capability as far as reach back. 
I would imagine? Uh, actually, somewhat limited. So the uh, the satellite umbrella actually only reaches about halfway down South America. Um, so when you're talking satellite foam from Antarctica, you're talking almost flat line to the horizon. So if there's anything in the way, you're not hitting a satellite. Okay. Um, so actually, it can be somewhat problematic. Right. <laughs> yeah. So, so yeah, you're definitely on your own, and whoever you know, is going to receive this patient is going to be surprised? Um, no, by the time we get up there, we're within a radio shot of the, uh, it usually takes several hours to get up the river and get up the, into port itself oh, okay. and get settled into the port. So by that time, they get at least a several hours or maybe uh, maybe a half a day of uh, notification. Okay. Um, let's see. But yeah, there, there's going to be no, no phoning a friend uh, or any kind of consult yeah. for a lot of that. That, that's why I get the. That's one of the reasons I get the strap hang. Okay, <laughs> so you could blame you. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I mean, you definitely you got to have your stuff uh, straight in, in order to, uh, uh, you know, have that type of responsibility for certain. Yes, and then and that's the thing. That's where you know being familiar with equipment, practicing things, the scenarios in your head, making sure you you know you have the right equipment to take care of just about any other contingency. Um, you know that's that's the biggest thing is prior preparation for everything. You know, mm-hmm. right? Um, I don't know. Uh, is there anything else that you guys would like to go over? But yeah, some of the other unique aspects of it. Um, so you get some things down there like seal bites, which you don't get anywhere else in the world. That, well, I can't say anywhere else, but for the most part, that's where most of those seal bites, the seal bites happen, okay. um, which is very unique. You don't see that quite often. So that's, uh, was it the leopard seals that are out there? Uh, no, the well, leopard seals are actually pretty good. Um, so it's, it's some, of the, some of the other seals, which are a little bit more aggressive, you're down there or on their breeding light sites. Um, so the males get super aggressive trying to get their harems together. Um, if you don't stand your ground and you turn and run, they will come and bite you in the butt. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. That's where most bites happen is actually in the buttocks. Oh, really? Yeah. So, yeah, and those very unique. Are, I'll tell you, I'll tell you, those adolescent baby first seals, they're like a bunch of little punks. They'll come charging <laughs> at you yeah. with bared teeth. And, and you have to you have to rear up, and then they'll run away. But they're like a they're like a bunch of little punks trying to, uh, yeah, trying to take you on. Right now, I would imagine you would you would deal with those just like you would a dog bite. Uh, they're actually a little bit different because they get a little bit of a different uh, floor to them. No, not a whole lot of capnographis that you see with a dog bite. Um, so typically you treat them with a, a combination of doxycycline and flagell. Um, definitely going to have to like debreed and clean. Uh, definitely no, no primary closure on those wounds, right. uh, because they come from a very nasty mouth. Okay. Um, I guess other than seals, I don't know. Is there any other, uh, issues with the wildlife? You know, not really. Cause the penguins, <laughs> the penguins aren't going to mess with you. They're actually right. more curious than anything else. Um, very few birds that are big enough to actually cause any issues. Um, but usually just the seals are the biggest issue. Okay. And I imagine if a killer whale was uh, a problem, you wouldn't have to deal with it because the guy would be gone. So. Oh, yes. And they're all over the place down there. But they typically are a little curious, but they typically stay away from boats. 
I don't know. I guess so. How was it? I mean, uh, is this uh, is this a trip you you would you guys would recommend? Absolutely. Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, with, with without a doubt. Uh, and I was lucky that, that Tim invited me along. We actually did a longer one where we we got to go out to the Falklands. Uh, Tim and I got to walk some of the Falklands battlefields uh, while we were there, Mount Longdon. Uh, then out to South Georgia and then to Antarctica. But yeah, I would recommend it to everybody. If you ever get a chance, you gotta you gotta go down there. And that's why yeah. Tim goes back every year. <laughs> is it- yeah, this is my fifth year, my fifth year doing this. So uh, and it's changing, ever changing landscapes, ever changing ice flows, uh, ever changing wildlife. The whales have rebounded over the five years. It's amazing how much the wildlife has rebounded with some of the conservation measures they found they put in. Um, is it fairly common that they'll they'll be looking for paramedics to go? Yeah, unfortunately not. Um, it's, it's typically just a one physician, uh, and then whoever the expedition staff, if they're trained, you know, cross trained in that. Okay. I tend to bring my medical friends, so I have a little bit of backup. Right. It's always good to have more than one set of hands. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, very good. Well, uh, well, thank you guys. Well, thank you guys. Appreciate it. Podcast, be sure to go to our website, www.prolongfieldcare.org. Find us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram. Subscribe and stay on the bleeding edge of combat medicine. This is Dennis for the PFC Podcast. Our boy is waiting there for you.